Welcome to Season 3 of the Reformed Informants Podcast. We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs. I'm TJ Darty. And we are the Reformed Informants. Man, the Christmas season is here. How's it feeling over at the uh, Darty residence? Uh, just like we turned around, it's like, oh my goodness, Christmas is this week. Uh, pretty wild, man. Um, but I'll say this, I have... I always love Christmas. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Uh, but being a dad at Christmas is uh, especially fun. Like tonight, we took uh, took the girls out just to go look at some Christmas lights. Blakely, uh, I don't think I've ever seen her happier. I mean, it was just so fun, so cool. Uh, love being a dad. Love Christmas, man. I'm excited about it. So uh, what about you guys? Anything special happening there? Oh, man. Not yet. I think uh, I think tomorrow night is going to be the uh, Christmas uh, Christmas light night. Um, Grapevine, Texas, I think is the place to be um, for some Christmas lights. I think downtown Grapevine is the spot. So we're going to go out there tomorrow evening, walk around, see some lights, grab some food. Um, Apparently here in Texas, leading up to Christmas Day, it's supposed to be like 80 degrees. So we'll be out (laughs) in shorts and a tank top. I'm sure Uh, living it up, man. That's great. Well, hey, man, on that note, on that subject of Christmas, uh, we're going to do something a little bit unique. I, I don't know if we've ever done this uh, in the past. This is season three uh, of the Reformed Informers podcast. I don't recall, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we've done any special Christmas episodes. And uh, just as we were transitioning uh, from our summertime series to finishing it up uh, here in the winter, uh, I, I had the idea. I thought, hey, what if we what if we knocked out a couple of Christmas episodes and uh, you uh, you, you at least allowed me to, to push you in that direction. So anyway, here we are. We're going to have a, a special uh, mini series here on uh, Advent or the coming of Christ. And so, um, yeah, pre- preview this episode up. What, do, what, are, we, what are we talking about? What, what do you anticipate uh, this conversation going towards? Yeah, I mean, to your point about not recording any Christmas episodes in the past, I think that's because... Um, we, we always took breaks during the holiday season. You know, mm-hmm, I think we would mm-hmm. wrap up a wrap up a series before Thanksgiving and we wouldn't pick back up until uh, the new year. But with the long extended break that we had this fall, man, we're kind of doing a, a 180. We're flip-flopping yeah. the, the situation here. So, yeah, I mean, this episode, um, you know, I guess this little mini-series, this two-part series that we have, um, that was your idea, your call. Um, and... It was too good to pass up. So what we're going to try and do in this episode in particular um, is sort of give a bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot flyover um, over this idea of people longing and waiting for the coming of the Messiah, for the Messiah to be born. Um, You know, this isn't just a New Testament concept, you know, in in Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter two. But this idea of the eternal Son of God being born into this world, this longing, this waiting, has uh, really been set in motion, uh, humanly speaking, in a human 
chronology uh, since Genesis chapter three. Yeah, man, that's that's exactly right. I love that. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. It was based on a sermon I actually preached last year around Christmas time. Uh, sermon I t- entitled "The Long Awaited Christmas." As uh, as as we because as we think about Christmas, I mean, uh, even thinking about this, like I mentioned, as as a father, I mean, there's there's just it's just marked with anticipation. Like that's you know we have this season of Advent where we uh, have we count down the days and we're getting closer and closer to the day of celebration, but I think that this time of, of anticipation and preparation is helpful for us uh, because if you just turn around and it's, oh, we're going to talk about and celebrate the incarnation of Christ, which by the way, I hope we could do that in the next episode. That's our plan. But if, if you don't have the anticipation or the buildup or the excitement or the preparation before that, you miss so much about what happens in human history and in salvation history leading up to that day. So as you said, the, the, the idea with this episode is to navigate and, and uh, attempt to see, as you you mentioned well, right, the, the thirty thousand foot view uh, to to just see the high points of of Old Testament chronology and Old Testament history and the anticipation and the waiting and the longing for the coming of the Messiah. And so, um, really, it, it's putting weight uh, behind the idea of the fullness of time coming. Galatians four, mm. uh, speaking of the coming of Christ, and and when the time was right. And only when the time was right, Jesus Christ came. And the idea with this episode is that we want to see all of the longing, all the expectation, all of the the, the long suffering of Israel, waiting and waiting and waiting, and God uh, perfectly orchestrating through his providence human history to unfold in such a way that it would culminate at the point of the birth of Jesus Christ. So that's the idea. And, uh, really it's kind of a unique episode, uh, but looking forward to, to having this conversation with you and, uh, and seeing, uh, what we can glean from the, from the story, uh, as we go. So, uh, one quick caveat before we, we hop in here, Lance, obviously we're going to have to be quick. We're going to have to be uh, cursory in the sense, like we're not going to be able to dig deep into a lot of these passages, even though I know we're going to want to, uh, but, uh, as long as we at least allude to them and reference them, hopefully sometime in the future we'll come back and unpack some of this stuff uh, in more detail. But uh, but for now, uh, this will be uh, just a flyby to give us a, a glimpse of uh, of the story as a whole. Yeah, man, you covered it. Um, that's exactly what the episode is going to be about. And that caveat there that, that you threw in uh, towards the end is true. That There is so much that could be said and so many passages that could, you know, that we could um, uh, take our listeners to or that we could drive the direction of this episode. But, I mean, inevitably, we, we would never uh, end the episode if we did that. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, right. like you said, we're going to hit some high points and uh, tap into the, those major themes, major characters, and, and major. Uh, concepts and ideas that ultimately get us to that Galatians 4, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 point um, when the fullness of the time had come. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. Okay, so let's let's hop in. Let's do this, uh, Lance. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take the first uh, pillar here because you already mentioned uh, Genesis chapter three. Okay, so let's just uh, by way of quick introduction uh, summarize 
uh, Genesis 1 and 2 very quickly, and then uh, in particular, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, uh, the, the world-changing event, that the story that we all know, but, but why that sets up the rest of the story. Just kind of give us a background uh, backdrop into where the story is going to go, launching from Genesis chapter 3. I mean, if you're going to do some biblical theology, uh, if you're going to ultimately make your way to Christ, you have to start in Genesis chapter 1. You've got to start That's in Genesis right. chapter 2. And then into Genesis chapter 3, it really sets the stage for uh, the Messiah, the coming of Christ. So, yeah, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, familiar portions of Scripture. Um, it begins um, with God uh, creating the entire world. Uh, creating the world out of absolutely nothing by a spoken word, we're told. Um, he creates in six days, and then we're told in uh, Genesis that on the seventh day, God rests from creation. So everything was good after day six. God said it was very good after the creation of mankind. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 is uh, sort of a commentary on uh, Genesis chapter 1 in particular with the high point of creation, which would be uh, the creation of man made in God's image, made in God's likeness. So everything up to that point is good. God is pleased. Uh, mankind has not sinned. Adam and Eve um, have not rebelled against God until we get to Genesis chapter 3. So when Genesis chapter 3 hits, um, we've got the fall of man. We've got Adam and Eve sinning before a holy God, them rebelling against God. God had instructed them not to eat um, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they rebel, disobey, plunges all of humanity into sin, as Romans 5, uh, 12 through 21 um, tells us. So at that point on, everyone born into this world, of course, is born a sinner, Um that's the beginning, the origin of the story, but mm -hmm. it doesn't stop there in Genesis 3. That's only the first half of, of Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. So I'm going to swing it back to you and let, uh, let you kind of get rolling on really this thread or this theme of the whole episode. Yeah, that's man, that's outstanding. Thank you for doing the background. Um uh, the background work there, because that helps set the stage. I mean, that's uh, the whole reason why we need a Savior, right? The entrance of sin into the world. Uh, you, you mentioned Adam serving as our uh, representative in the garden. He brings sin. He brings guilt upon us all. So there's a need for a Savior. Now, you mentioned, okay, sin comes into the story in Genesis chapter 3 there at the beginning. But the solution, the coming of Christ doesn't come in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't come in Genesis 4 or 5 or 6. And in fact, he doesn't come in the book of Genesis. He doesn't come in the book of Exodus. He doesn't come for thousands of years. I mean, generation after generation after generation is waiting and longing for this Messiah, the one that we need to make things right because of the sin of Adam. We, we need a new and better Adam. We need a seed of the woman. And that's where we see the first hint comes in Genesis chapter 3, you mentioned this, but it comes immediately following the sin of Adam and Eve. So you have this account in verses 1 to 13, the introduction of the serpent, uh, the temptation, uh, God uh, approaches, he, he confronts Adam and Eve, 
And then in verses 14 to 19, immediately following, so you have this, mm-hmm. this detailed account, but then immediately following, you have this pronouncement of judgment that God issues uh, upon uh, the characters in that story. And he begins, in his pronouncement of judgment, he begins with the serpent. And tucked away in this judgment that he is placing on these three individuals, he goes to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that verse is... Although Adam and Eve didn't know it yet, and even Moses, when he wrote this verse, he wouldn't have fully understood what this was referencing yet, but this was the gospel in embryonic form. Okay, This is the, the early reference, the early hint that one day there's going to come someone from the line of the woman, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the seed of the serpent. And so you have this dichotomy, this this battle that's set up, this thread that runs throughout the entire Old Testament of the seed of the woman into the New Testament, actually, from the seed of the woman into uh, or versus the seed of the serpent. And there's a hint here that there's going to be someone who will come who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be a fatal blow, and it's going to come uh, through uh, the line of the woman. And it's already heating up. This is this episode's ah, already heating help up. It. It's already it's already taken off here. Um, yeah, so so much we could say. I, I do think it's important that we establish these these early chapters. Really sets the framework for the rest of the episode, rest of the storyline. Like like you've already mentioned. Um, I like the point that you that you mentioned earlier. And I guess let me, let me put it this way: it, it's. We have the totality of Scripture. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Like there, there is no more progressive revelation. We we have all of it. So we, you know, we can sort of in our mind, it's hard to not already have this piece together. But the first time that this would have hit the pages of Scripture, or this would have even been passed down orally from generation right. to generation, they wouldn't have had the full picture of it which is ultimately what we're trying to develop. But like you mentioned, this idea of a seed, this idea of a human being, this idea of a person coming on the scene at some point in the future, they they would have understood that. Um, now, of course, it would have been a lesser degree, obviously, that we have. But this is why in the book of Genesis, and I don't want to get ahead of us here, but I'm going to send it back to you uh, to continue moving forward. But this is why the, the book of Genesis makes a, a clear point to mention a seed multiple times in the book. Mm-hmm. And this is also mm-hmm. why the book of Genesis is clear on making distinct genealogies of, right. of tracing descendant lines, of connecting people and connecting families. It goes back to this Genesis 3.15 idea that there would be a seed that would come from a woman that would crush the serpent's head. So, this is established here, but it's really fully developed throughout Genesis and then on into the next segments we'll talk about. Yeah, that, that's the perfect segue because you could argue, you can correct me if, if you disagree with this, but you could argue in some sense that the entire Old Testament is an unfolding and unveiling a, a development of Genesis 3.15. 
that there's the hope, there's the promise that God makes, and, and it's tucked away in the middle of a pronouncement of judgment, but the rest of the story is this development, this unfolding, this revelation of who this seed of the woman is. Because when God makes this promise in Genesis 3.15, Jesus does not appear in that moment. We have to wait. And so the people of God, they wait for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, from that point forward, you go to Genesis 4, you got the story of Cain and Abel. Then Mm -hmm. you get to Genesis 5. You mentioned the genealogy there. I mean, you've got thousands of years that are passing in Mm -hmm. in this time leading up to uh, the story of, of Noah and leading up to the flood. And in the middle of all of those uh, developments, you have, as you mentioned, this oral tradition being passed down. And they're looking, they're waiting for the seed of the woman. They're waiting for this one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. But he doesn't come yet. And that takes us all the way up. You can see this development happening, these t- this time, these generations passing. But the next high point of the story comes in Genesis chapter 12, because in Genesis chapter 12, God establishes a nation and he makes a promise to a man named Abram. He calls Abram out of darkness. We, we learn uh, in the book of Joshua that uh, Abram's parents uh, mm. were were pagans, right? They, they, they did not follow Yahweh. They didn't know the Lord. But God called him, by the way, their sovereign election uh, present there in, in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, but God calls Abram out of darkness, and he makes a covenant with him. He makes a promise. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Lance, could could you read or reference or, or highlight uh, that, that covenant that God makes in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and, and maybe unpack it a little bit for us there uh, as God establishes this with Abraham? Yeah, yeah, let me read this. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, to pick back up on uh, what we see in Genesis chapter 3, Again, you you have um, this talk of families, of of blessings. Um, later on in Genesis chapter twenty six, you have discussions on offspring, um, and into Genesis chapter twenty eight. So, like you said, God has He has called and uh, reached out and taken Abram out of you know pagan idolatry that you mentioned with his parents from the book of Joshua that records that. And he has called mm-hmm. Abraham to himself, and this is what birthed the great nation. This is the, the Jews, the nation of Israel, the Israelites. They, they are born, at, at, they are born um, in, in one sense out of this, this time period and this time frame. And this is one more step forward. This is one more segment of the plan that's getting us to that Galatians 4.4 4, uh, reference. That's right. And, and this promise is not a separate promise from Genesis 3.15, right? Like this is not, okay, God was going to do something and now he's like altered course. No, this is, this is, as you said, the next step. So this is giving more color to what we saw. There was just this, this vague reference in Genesis 3.15. Well, now we know that somehow this seed of the woman, who this Messiah figure is going to come through the family of 
Abraham, God has made this promise to him, and that through him, somehow, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And this promise here, it just gives us another glimmer of hope, right? There's there's something coming. There's something that's going to happen. And so we're waiting. We're longing. We're anticipating. We're expecting uh, the goodness of God to uh, to manifest in this seed of the woman, in this person. But it's not Abraham's son. It's not, it's not Isaac. It's not his son. It's not Jacob. But instead, that promise, it's passed down. So throughout the book of Genesis, God reinforces this promise that he's made to Abraham. We see those high points. Uh, Genesis 12, of course, it's established, but you see it again in Genesis 15, uh, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Uh, you, you have these references over and over again, but then it's passed down even to his offspring. So Genesis chapter 26, uh, God continues this promise and he makes it now to Abraham's son Isaac. He says in verses 3 and 4, he says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you, talking to Isaac, and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, will give your offspring all these lands. And then he says, And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, the same language that was used in Genesis chapter 12. Well, two chapters later, Genesis 28, God repeats the promise, and he repeats it now to Jacob. And he says in chapter 28, verse 14, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, this is just a side note, but later uh, throughout the Old Testament, when they speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's why you see that, right? Because the same promise is repeated specifically to each of these three generations. But God is continuing to reinforce the idea that there is hope. There's going to be a blessing. There's going to be a person who will somehow defeat the serpent, the seed of the serpent, and who will somehow bless all the families of the earth. And so the, the promise passes down from generation to generation to generation. And each time there's a renewed hope that's being reinforced to the people of God. Yeah, that was uh, 36 chapters of Genesis summed up there in like, uh, <laughs> right. you know, five, five six minutes. So right. again, the, the book of Genesis is also a riveting storyline. You know, so everything that you mentioned there, of course, is, you know, biblically and doctrinally and theologically spot on. But just within that narrative of how all of that truth unfolds, it, it's really riveting scene after riveting scene after riveting scene and those promises woven through it right um mm -hmm. so right. then the, the last right. major figure or the last high point that we come across in the book of genesis begins in genesis 37 and runs all the way through chapter 50 and that would be the story of joseph of, co of course joseph was one of uh, jacob's 12 sons and the book of Genesis closes out focusing on him in particular. Uh, but it's interesting that woven into this storyline, um, in, in God's providence, this entire nation, uh, the, the Israelites here, the, the Jews, I guess you could say, um, ultimately 
are taken to the land of Egypt. And then that's mm-hmm. where we're going to pick up in the book of Exodus. But there's one key component to the storyline that we can't miss in Genesis chapter 49, yep. verse 10. Um, we, we come back to this idea of this seed or this offspring coming from Genesis 3 and, and, and the fact that it would not be from Joseph's descendant line personally, but it would be through another one of Jacob's sons, which would be Judah. And there's also a hint in here that this person or this seed, which is ultimately Christ, that he, he will also be a king. He, he, he will be yes. a, a ruler in one sense. So let me read Genesis 49.10. I'm, I'm going to send it back to you. So Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right. So again, that's a foresight, foreshadowing of this seed um, mm-hmm. that, that would have this kingly, regal rule, not from Joseph's line, um, which Joseph is still important to the story, but would ultimately come from Judah. Huh. Yes. I'm so glad. I, I'm so glad that you highlighted that. Um, I was I was afraid that we we're going to just skip over that and run into Exodus. But I'm really glad you mentioned that because because again, imagine you're, you're reading this story. Imagine you're reading for the first time, or at least it's unfolding or developing uh, before us. Here, we're making our way through the Book of Genesis. Well, here in Genesis 49, you mentioned we have this this promise, which is again intensified. It's heightened, and now we're told that this seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent that he is going to, we, we know is somehow, some way, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. All the mm-hmm. nations will be affected. But now, as you mentioned, now we find out he's going to be a ruler. He's going to, he's going to be a king. He, he's going to, he's never going to be removed from his throne. He, he's going to be a, a, a sovereign ruler and all the people will obey him. So that's what Genesis 49 tells us. And then we're expecting him to show up, and where does the story take us next? But you mentioned we go to Egypt, and what does it say in Exodus chapter 1? We're introduced, and it says uh, in chapter 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, and it lists out the, the descendants of Jacob, and it says that there were 70 persons in verse 5. Joseph was already there. That's what 37 to 50 of chapter, uh, chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis tell us. tells us how Joseph ends up in Egypt tells us how the family makes their way over into Egypt by God's providence. And then it says this, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So, now we were told there's going to be this this seed of the woman. He's going to be a king. And then the next king we're introduced to is a tyrant who's going to kill the people of Israel. So you have this buildup and you're thinking, okay, here comes the king. And it turns out the king that we're introduced to doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know the, the nation of Israel, doesn't care for. So as 400 years passes and Moses, as he's writing this story, just kind of lets that slide by with just a stroke of a pen. 400 years of them uh, waiting for this king. And then the next king we see is one who's going to kill them. 
So that's how the story of Exodus begins. And again, we're waiting, we're longing for this one that's been promised. And instead, Israel is presented with another foe, another villain. And by the way, this is just a side note here, but Pharaoh and Egyptian... Uh, archaeology, we, we, we know that Pharaoh had a particular symbol that would be on his crown and on a lot of his uh, uh, paraphernalia, if you would say, uh, but it was a serpent. And so here we have the seed of the serpent who is being embodied in the person of Pharaoh, who's this king who is dealing wickedly with the nation of Israel while they're waiting for the seed of the woman. They're underneath the thumb of the seed of the serpent. So again, there's this question, is there going? Is he actually going to come? Is Israel going to survive this? Because he's looking to kill. He's looking to destroy their children. He, he's looking to uh, control them um, through uh, this act of slaughtering uh, young children. So that's where the story takes us in the book of Exodus. And Lance, where does that, where does that end up leading us uh, down this, uh, down this trajectory? Man, how intense is this? I mean, this is, this is on the pages of Holy scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I think this is uh, a, <laughs> I know the episode isn't about this, man, but this is an argument to get involved and get immersed in the Old Testament Amen. because there's so That's many right. truths tied to uh, the Messiah, um, mm. uh, you know, in the, in the largest sense, but even down to the nuances and details of the narrative, man, it, 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 it's all connected. It's all connected. And, and this would be true. So, as you mentioned, you've got a people that are waiting on this seed, waiting on this Genesis 49 king. Now, that, that's not what they're getting. They're enslaved. They're, they're in bondage. They're in a, a foreign land. Um, but this sets the stage in God's divine decrees and in his divine wisdom to bring up and raise up a man by the name of Moses who would mm -hmm. be... Um, who would be a, a, a redeemer. He, he would be uh, sort of a, a mediator in one sense um, to take the people of God who are in slavery, who are in bondage, uh, to get them out of that, to be their redeemer, to be their savior in one degree, lowercase s there, to be their savior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is done um, through, through the man Moses, and we're introduced to Moses here in Genesis or Exodus chapter two, um, when he is called by God, or or excuse me, Exodus chapter two when he is born, and then Exodus chapter three when he is called by God at the burning bush. Right. So right. we've got a divine encounter. We have God um, uh, uh, manifesting Himself uh, in, in in the burning bush. Um, there could be great theological discussions about that. Um, is yeah. that God the Father? Is that God the Son there? We don't have time to dig into that. I'm just going to kind of whet the appetite there. But we have God calling a man to now be a leader and take people, God's people, out, out of slavery. Yeah, and you mentioned slavery. Uh, we, we have this, this theme that's being presented to us and a, a reminder. So again, recognize that for the story unfolding as it is, we are in need of a savior. We're in need of the seed of the woman because of 
the sin that we are held bondage in bondage to. So as we see the people of Israel in captivity, we're reminded of our own slavery and of the nation of Israel's slavery. More importantly than their enslavement to Egypt, they're enslaved to their own sin. And so we're reminded of that. We have a, a visual depiction of what it means to be in captivity. And so they're longing for someone to come and to lead them out. Now, you mentioned Moses is this lowercase s savior. He's this deliverer for them. But Moses is a type. He, he's he's pointing forward. We need someone like Moses to be a new and better Moses who's not going to fail, who's not going to disobey God, who, who's going to actually do um, all the the things that Adam failed to do, and who's going to be sinless in his uh, endeavor, uh, but but all of these themes are are being presented to us and hinting and, and referencing and uh, typologically setting the stage for this coming Messiah. Uh, not the least of which, of course, is the familiar uh, the final f- uh, plague that that is placed upon the Egyptians. It's the night of the Passover. And so you have this this uh, uh, in Exodus chapter uh, eleven. We, we're told about this tenth plague, and Israel is spared uh, from this, uh, where the firstborn uh, of of every uh, household was struck down. Uh, but they're spared because they would take this. They would take a lamb that was without blemish, an innocent lamb, and they would sacrifice it. And then they would take the blood of the lamb and they would spread it over the doorpost. And so then, when God was going to strike down the firstborn. Uh, all across the land of Egypt, he would pass over, it's where the term comes from, pass over all the homes where the lamb had been slain. And so, uh, again, there's imagery there giving us hope that perhaps one day we could have a lamb who would be slain and keep us from being struck down uh, from a holy and righteous God for our sin. And so that's what the book of Exodus is really setting the stage for. It's pointing us, it's giving us, again, this, this hope uh, that there might be one uh, who could lead us out uh, of our slavery to sin and who could provide a sacrifice to cover uh, the, the punishment that we uh, deserve for that sin. So Exodus then sets that stage as the people of Israel are delivered out of captivity uh, in the miraculous uh, d- uh, deliverance through uh, the Red Sea. Now, when we get to the other side, so now Israel comes out uh, of the Red Sea. Uh, they they see the waters crash back over uh, the 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 nation of Israel. Uh, they are um, on the other side. We're in Exodus 15 now. Uh, they sing a song. We referenced this in a, re- a recent episode, but they sing a song of celebration. Mm-hmm. And and then after this final plague, they began to wander about in the wilderness. So they're being prepared. God is leading them to enter into the land that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, right? So now we've got a a fulfillment uh, of this promise is going to happen. And in this interim, in this time of of preparation, God is going to give them a gift. And what gift does he give them there at Mount Sinai? Lance shows up in Exodus uh, chapter 19, 20 and following. What what gift and why is that important to the story? Yeah, critical, critical component to the story. Exodus 19, 20 and following records the giving of the law. Um, that would be, of course, the Ten Commandments, but that would extend beyond that to cover all laws in terms of um, morality, 
uh, also the civil law, the laws that would be specifically designated to the nation of Israel, and then ceremonial laws, uh, which would involve um, everything from all of the people involved being ceremonially clean or unclean, sacrifices, Levitical priesthood, all of those things pour out of Exodus 19, 20, Mount Sinai, Moses being up there, God speaking to him and following. So what you have is God establishing his law, which we've said on the podcast is a reflection of his character. So God lays this foundation. He gives revelation of what he... um not only desires, but the the standard of his holiness. Um, we see that in Le- the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is, ba- is basically outlining, detailing God's holiness and how man cannot be right with God or come to God because man is not holy. So in other words, God's law is a reflection of his holiness, but it also lets the people know that they are not holy and cannot come to him on their own. So this ultimately develops the Levitical priesthood, the idea that there has to be um, intercession, there has to be mediators, there has to be go-betweens. Someone has to go from or before God on, on behalf of man, and then someone needs to be there um, to relay the opposite side of that. In other words, for God to be able to interact with man. And that, again, is setting the stage for what's coming later on in Scripture. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, I wish we could uh, spend more time here. We, we obviously have to move on. But uh, two things that you mentioned I wanted to, to just highlight very briefly. One, you mentioned... Um, you mentioned the, the giving of the law, and it's a revelation of God's holiness and his character. And with that comes the knowledge of sin, Paul says. So the law is given, and when the law is given, we now have a way to account for and recognize and understand our violation of God's standard. We, we now see that. And so with the giving of the law, Israel is reminded of their sin debt that we owe uh, because of Adam. So we we see this being uh, developed here, and it's a wonderful gift. But at the same time, it, it, it in at this point in the story, it's it's an indictment because now uh, Israel uh, has a knowledge of their violation, which is why the sacrificial system is is put in place. But as we have actually uh, covered on the podcast. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how this uh, this sacrificial system had no end, right? That the priest would stand daily, verse 11 says Hebrews 10, daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. It was just a never-ending, ongoing process. Mm-hmm. And it reminds us, it, it points to the idea that we need something better, like this is good and we're thankful and God was gracious to provide this, but it's not good enough to restore the broken relationship that was severed in the Garden of Eden. And so, again, pointing forward, we need someone else. So we've been promised that there's going to be uh, a seed of the woman to crush out of the serpent. We've been promised that through this one, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We've been promised that he will be a king and uh, as the, 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 the king, he will uh, reign and rule 
uh, over uh, his people. We've been promised and hinted at that there's going to be uh, a new and better Moses uh, who's going to lead us out of captivity. We need that. We need the one who's going to lead us. We need the one who's going to be a new and a better sacrifice. That's been anticipated. It's been highlighted. It's been hinted at. It's been promised. But he's not coming yet. Because when we get to speeding through the book of Numbers and the traveling through the wilderness, and then we get to the book of Deuteronomy and the uh, final uh, instructions or repetition of the law before they enter the promised land, we finally, in the book of Joshua, God is faithful to his word and he gives the promised land, the the land that he promised in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Um, We see that they uh, are able to assume this land, that they can... Uh, head into this land that God has promised them. God is faithful. He, he gives that to them. But it doesn't take long, despite all the warnings, despite all the, uh, the provisions that God has made for the people, it doesn't take long for uh, the, the nation to find themselves wrapped up in sin. And the book of Judges uh, highlights this for us. There's this um, this spiral further and further and further away from the presence of God. Uh, and we're told in Genesis, excuse me, in Judges chapter two, uh, verses eleven and following, that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the balls, the the, uh, the false gods, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to him, to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. They served these false gods. So, again, we're reminded that Israel, just like all of us, needs a Savior. The, 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 problem, the sin problem that was uh, introduced in Genesis 3, it's still here. And, mm. in fact, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Something, something has to be done to reverse the curse of Adam. That's that's the need, and it's uh, laid out very clearly uh, and desperately in the Book of Judges. Man, it's like <laughs> it's like this. Uh, it's like we're at Six Flags, man. It's just a roller coaster ride here. You yeah. know, you've got yeah. these these beautiful promises laid out: Genesis three, Genesis twelve, uh, Genesis is full of them. Uh, then you get to the book of Exodus and you've got God meeting with Moses, Moses meeting with God, this perfect, holy law reflect, reflecting a perfect, holy God. And then you get to the book of judges, man, it's like the ultimate yeah. low point, right? right? It's the ultimate right. low point. But it, I mean, you see uh, quickly uh, the holiness of God and his standard and his perfection and, and, and uh, juxtaposed to that, you see the wickedness of mankind. I mean, what you see in Judges is what you see in Genesis. You got right. God destroying the entire world except for eight uh, because of their wickedness and their sin. I mean, here, here, here it is again. <laughs> and, and there's, right. there's no remedy, no solution. Um, except what has been slowly thread through this this revelation is that there is a savior that this messiah he he he's coming and he he can deal with all of this that's right and he is coming but not yet because before uh this this messiah comes israel's solution okay their their uh attempt to fix things is they themselves they cry out for a king 
First Samuel chapter 8 says that all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways, so therefore appoint for us a king to judge us or to lead us like all the other nations. So the people of Israel, they come to Samuel, they say, Hey, this is not working, we need a king. All the other nations have kings, we need a king. And God lets them have what they ask for. And uh, they choose Saul. And Saul is terrible. He's an absolute failure. Uh, we don't have to get into that uh, this particular episode. But uh, suffice to say, he doesn't do what, uh, what God expects of his kings to do. And so, again, it becomes clear Israel needs a new and better king. They need someone to be that Genesis 49 fulfillment. They, they, they need someone uh, to rule uh, and to do so perfectly. And uh, to rule with authority, to rule with power, to rule as God intended. Um, but after Saul, Israel is introduced to the next king in line, and that was going to be God's choice because God had chosen David. And God does something special whenever David enters the scene because, again, God makes a promise. So, Second Samuel chapter seven, Lance. Uh, maybe you want to uh, highlight this, reference this, uh, comment on this uh, vital covenant that God makes with David. Second Samuel chapter seven, uh, similar to the promise He made to Abraham. Now we have more color again coming to this, it's being fulfilled or it's being filled out uh, even more. So, uh, what happens in Second Samuel seven, and why is it important for our expectation of the coming King? Yeah, let me just walk through the Davidic covenant, that text you keep mentioning there, TJ, Second, uh, Second Samuel chapter seven, and just listen to the to the language here. It's, I mean, it's it's almost like if you close your eyes and heard it, you're just seeing a, a piecing together of of the book of Genesis and the promises that have mm -hmm. already been made. Now, again, it's been narrowed down e even more. Um, so, Second Samuel seven eleven. It says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Now listen to this. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So again, here's that talk, the seed, the offspring, a human being, someone coming after you, genealogies, etc. Mm-hmm. And then it says, I will establish his kingdom. So, so here's that the scepter will not depart from Judah talk that we saw earlier in Genesis. So there's going to be a king. And then it goes on to say, he shall build a house from my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So again, uh, you, you, see, you see this storyline, this thread, this theme developing there's an anticipation of a particular person uh, who will be a descendant now we are told directly from david and not only will he be a descendant but he will reign on uh, the throne of david not temporarily uh, not for a short time uh, but forever um, and mm. we're told that's the type of kingdom will be established so it's interesting here man is that we start learning a little bit more about the Messiah, uh, about this person. It's we, we see some eternality talk, an everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom. 
again, we've got the full picture, so we get it now, but this was slowly unfolding in the mind of the people what type of person this would be. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It's a, an excellent observation there, especially whenever you consider, as you said, this echoes loudly out of the book of Genesis because this is the same Messiah. The, the mm-hmm. one in Genesis 12 is the same one in 2 Samuel 7. And when you put them together and recognize, hey, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be something special. Like this is not just going to be any old somebody, right? Like this is going to be the second Adam. He's going to be the last Adam. He's going to be the, the one. You have all these figures, all these types, all these characters, and they were, God used them mightily. I mean, mightily in in his for his purposes through his providence. But all of them failed. All of them fall short of being what we need. And so, yes, like there's going to be one. You, you mentioned this, man, like the eternality, uh, the, the with our full picture, we understand like this is um, this is God in flesh this is deity. Um, but he's coming through the line of David. So we've said, OK, it's going to be a king because, again, this, this is they didn't elect kings. Uh, you know, they didn't have a democracy. Right. It's it's uh, it's monarchical rule through the family line. And so somewhere down the line of David, there's going to be a king who's going to rule forever. Now, it's not David's son. It's not David's grandson. Right. Because immediately following David, we find out about King Solomon. And the scripture says a, quite a bit about Solomon. He had great wisdom and wealth and power, but his kingdom came to an end. He, he wasn't the one that 2 Samuel 7 was speaking of. And after Solomon, something important happens, and that is that the nation of Israel actually divides. So you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, we're not going to get into all the, the details of that. You know, we got to continue to move uh, quickly here through this uh, chronology of the Old Testament, but you've got the north is Israel, you've got Judah in the south, and so throughout the books of First uh, and Second Kings, um, you, you see these generations of kings which are uh, set up in the north and in the south, and in general, uh, just speaking broad strokes, uh, the, the, the kings were wicked. I mean, the, the, the kings do not seek after the face of God. Uh, there are a few um, who are redemptive in, in nature and who prolong the judgment of God in a sense. They, they with, withhold that for uh, a season. But overall, the kings are failures. And again, it just it, we need the Second Samuel 7 king. We need that Davidic covenant king. We need the one that God promised. Um, but these kings... They're terrible. They're, they fail. Uh, they lead Israel not towards uh, reconciliation with God, but in fact, away from it. Yeah, man. Time after time after time, generation after generation, king after king after king, failure, 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 right? <laughs> um, so much so that really this moves us to the back end portion of the Old Testament where the wickedness and the idolatry uh, was so rampant, uh, so evil, and so wicked that God now starts sending a, a string of, of prophets, uh, a string of spokespersons, people to speak to the people, people to speak to the nations on, on behalf of God. 
uh, really for, uh, I, I mean, there's multiple purposes that they did this and that God used the prophets to speak in this manner, but it was really a twofold purpose. One was to pronounce judgment uh, and repentance and the need uh, to identify and address sin and turn back to God. But at the same time, these prophets also gave a glimmer of hope and right. that there that that the promise of God hadn't been nullified that he didn't go back on his word but everything was still intact as far as God uh, being able to redeem a people to send a savior um, to deal with sin and all of those things that he said he would do so now you've got you've got multiple prophets that come on the scene um, in our English Bibles, we label them as the major and the minor prophets, but you want to expand on those guys, T? Yeah, I mean, uh, I love the way you said that, and I love the way you identified the twofold nature of their message, uh, because the wickedness of the kings really developed, because on, concurrently, chrono- chronologically, right? So as the kings are continuing in their wickedness, God begins to send these prophets to warn the nation, like, hey, if you keep this up, Judgment is coming, and it's a fulfillment of what God had warned them about in the book of Deuteronomy. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You can see blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. If you disobey, uh, you will be judged. And this is what they tell them, and they remind them of that message. And uh, so God sends, as you mentioned, you know, the major prophets. You've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then you've got the minor prophets, and you've got uh, Hosea and Joel and Amos and all the others. Um that are calling forth this message, but you you, you talked about this twofold uh, uh, proclamation that they would make, and I just want to I just want to use the the book of Isaiah very briefly to to point to this because we're familiar with these passages uh, around this time of year. But Isaiah chapter one begins the book begins uh, in, in verse two. Isaiah says, "Hear, O heavens; give ear, O earth; for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up." but they have rebelled against me. Mm. So that's how that's how Isaiah's message begins. And he uh, calls out to the universe. He calls to all of God's creation. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. And this is a, a means, prophets would do this, uh, of saying, come in and stand as witnesses in the divine courtroom for what I'm about to charge the nation of Israel with. And so he says, come and behold what I'm about to do to them because they have rebelled against me. And then he lays out, uh, and especially in those first five chapters, he lays out the case for their wickedness, for their rebellion, for their mistreatment uh, of others, for just the way in which they have uh, completely disregarded the law of God. So you have this this call to repentance and also this indictment for their wickedness. Like this is what is going to happen to you, and it's not unfounded. That's what Isaiah is saying. And yet the same messenger, the same messenger who proclaimed that message also gives us those promises that you talked about. The the faithful God will do what he said he would do. And and so these promises that we hold fast and hold so dearly at this time of year also come from the pen of Isaiah. So Isaiah 7, 14, we read uh, every year, we think about this this passage, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That happens in the book of Isaiah. 
That's a prophecy, a, a declaration about what will come. We're going to have God with us. Isaiah chapter 9 goes on to say, For to us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David, uh, referencing again 2 Samuel 7, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is, again, a promise that God is making, and this hope is reinforced uh, through the prophet Isaiah to say there is going to come a king who will do everything that I have promised that he will do, despite your rebellion, despite your wickedness, despite your unwillingness to repent, despite all the ways in which you have violated my covenant, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. So there's this twofold message from the prophets. It's the message of condemnation and the message of hope and reconciliation, which will come through the promised one. So each prophet has varying degrees of that message. That's a, that's a broad uh, strokes type of, of uh, summary. But in general, that's what the prophets did. And with each of those prophets, Lance, could you, could you, could you, you know, unpack or at least reference here Deuteronomy 18. So these prophets again, point to not just with their message, but even with the role as prophets. We talked yep. about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Well, with these prophets, we're reminded of the fulfillment of a promise given back in Deuteronomy 18. What's that, Lance? I, li- I, like how, uh, <clears throat> I, li- I like how you laid out the guide here, in, in particular with what you did here with the prophets, because I, I think you purposely skipped over that part in the early portions of... Mm-hmm. Uh, the Old Testament narrative, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, to save this reference that you attached here to the end of this section about prophets. Mm -hmm. So in in other words, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you've got a prophetic text about prophets and then ultimately the final prophet that would be Christ. So what you see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 15, is... Uh, this idea of prophets, a succession of prophets, a string of prophets, people that would come that would speak on behalf of God, which you just described, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and, and the rest. But they would ultimately be a preview. Uh, they would ultimately be a picture of the final prophet who was to come. So again, we start seeing the, this idea of this coming Messiah— uh, Jesus Christ starts to take some more form, some more shape. We, we know that he is going to be a man. He, he's going to be born of a woman. Uh, we know that he's going to be a, a regal figure. He's going to be a king. And then Deuteronomy 18, in conjunction with the string of prophets that we see, now we see that oh, well, he, he's also going to be a prophet. He, he's going to take on that role. And we didn't even mention this earlier, and I guess would now be a time to interject it, you know, is that the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is ultimately right. a picture of Christ who would be the the final priest. And I guess if you need a summation of all of those points, just get into the book of Hebrews sometime this week because it right. kind of details right. all of this. 
Um, but but that, that's that's where we are. The, the the line of prophets is brought forth for that twofold purpose that we've mentioned. But then it's also a preview of the coming and the final prophet, which would be Christ. And that's that's exactly right. Glad you mentioned the the, the priesthood there, which kind of glossed over that. But that's exactly right. And these each of these prophets um, just reminds us, or at least now we can look back and see this. But each of these prophets uh, is a a continuation or a reminder of that promise given in Deuteronomy eighteen, which says there's going to be one that speaks for God, unlike all these other men. And he's going to be uh, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. And again, it's all these different, um, all these different like streams all coming together in one fountainhead, uh, which will ultimately come in Galatians 4, 4 at the fullness of time. But again, with each of these prophets, you have this declaration, you have this warning, you have these promises made, but, that prophet that was promised to Deuteronomy 18 isn't coming yet. The Messiah isn't coming yet because Israel will face the penalty of their sin. And in particular, God's uh, fulfillment of, of the promises made in Deuteronomy 28 is that they're going to be captured. They're going to go into exile. And so you have the the northern kingdom is uh, captured by Assyria in 722 B.C., uh, southern kingdom by Babylon, 586 BC. We have those accounted for us in biblical text. Um, we can confirm them from extra biblical materials as well. Um, and and in those instances, we're again, we work our way through the Old Testament. We're reminded of our need for a Savior. Like w- if we don't pay attention to this, like the seriousness of our sin, the holiness of God, it is put on display there. Uh, he's not joking. He's not kidding. Sin is serious. We've got to deal with it. And we've got to have someone who will make right what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. So you have the exile, which happens. And again, this is, uh, it doesn't, the, the Old Testament doesn't, isn't put together like a like a, a narrative, a, chron- a chronological narrative through the Old Testament. But in looking at it this way, you see, okay, you've got the exile, and we're getting closer to the time of Christ, um, but he's not coming yet because next you have the people of Israel returning back to the land. So even as God pours out his, his justice, he, he's still faithful. He still keeps his word and he sends, uh, the people of Israel. He allows them to come back. So he raises up Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, he has the, the decree of Cyrus and Israel returns back to the land. So this is, uh, the book of Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the wall and the temple. They, uh, resolve to trust God while they wait. And as they wait, again, the promise is repeated. So uh, Zechariah 9.9, I'm just going to read this real quickly, uh, and then Lance won't hear any comments you have here. But Zechariah 9.9, a prophet here speaks uh, during this time of the post-exilic period, after the exile, and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he and this is a prophecy which is going to be fulfilled uh later uh leading into uh the time of jesus entering into uh, jerusalem to be sacrificed to be killed uh, on the cross but this promise is made that the king is coming there's going to be one who will bring salvation 
despite all their wickedness, despite the judgment of God, uh, salvation will still come. That's told to us even after the exile. Yeah, man. And I mean, that really, with your uh, quote there from Zechariah, one of the the final and last prophets, uh, that really brings the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament scene, everything that we've talked about, that really brings it to a close and it, it almost seems like it's fairly abrupt and then uh right. <laughs> and then once it does end we've got 400 years of silence mm. what is typically called the 400 years of silence that that would basically be the time from the last speaking prophet which zechariah would be included in that most likely malachi uh, around 400 mm. bc all the way up until the time of John the Baptist, which would have been around four to four to six BC, depending on when you date, kind of the birth of Christ, um, in that in that time period. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, this four hundred years. I mean, what what's going on here? We've got silence from God. We've got no prophets. I mean, what what, what is the situation? Well, yeah, I mean, it's so easy, like, because if you get to the end of Malachi and then you just, like, flip the page, like, oh, here's Matthew, here's John the Baptist, like, just easy to just continue in the story, right? But there's 400 years, I mean, four centuries of silence. So put this in perspective. We were told about this Messiah back in Genesis 3.15, and we've seen the color kind of come into shape. We've seen the promise kind of been filled out. We we now know, okay, he's going to be a king and he's going to somehow bless all the nations of the earth. And he's going to be a, a, a sacrifice and a priest. And he's going to be um, a, a prophet and he's going to speak for God. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to be from the line of David. We have all these different streams coming together and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And then we go into, uh, we go into exile because of our rebellion. And then, okay, God has been faithful and he brings us out of exile. And then we have these prophets again, reminding us he's coming, he's coming, he's going to be here. And then just nothing like the airwaves go dead for 400 years. And so really, I think that's important for us to to consider as we think about this longing, this anticipation, because that would be the time when you just say, okay, it didn't happen. Like, it's just not going to. It's one thing if you got somebody in your ear saying, hey, look, God, he's still working. He's still moving. He's still doing things. Um, remember this, remember that. But you had nothing. And so I think all all that does, whenever you put that in perspective, what it does is it makes what happens in Luke chapter one, it makes that so much weightier. It makes it so it packs such a, a, a more powerful punch because in the Old Testament you have all this anticipation, and then you have this period where it just kind of wanes and it just kind of uh, drifts off into nothing. And then suddenly, in Luke chapter 1, there's this final promise that's given. And it's given in such a way that it recalls everything that's happened before, all that anticipation, and it just instantly ticks back up. And um, the the excitement level uh, just goes uh, through the roof. So uh, Luke chapter 1, what happens there, that final promise 
what 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 do we see there, Lance? Yeah, and to go back onto the dates that I mentioned earlier, the that four to six BC, this is really when the the Luke one or Luke one narrative this this section picks up um, with the breaking of of, of silence um, with the birth announcement of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. who ultimately prepares the way for the Messiah, we're told, from the prophet Malachi. But then you also have Gabriel showing up to announce uh, that she would be with child and that he would be named Jesus because he will be the savior of people's sins. Uh, that's essentially what the name Jesus means. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we see that that 400 years of silence is, is broken, and we see angelic testimony to the idea of John the Baptist, who, who would be born, who would prepare the way, and then also Jesus, who would come after John, um, who, who would be uh, this, this seed. It would be the fulfillment of everything we've been talking about on this episode, but everything that the Old Testament had ultimately been pointing to. That's right, man. And it shows up in this final promise. Uh, I wish I could read the whole passage, but I'm guessing uh, if you listen to this prior to Christmas that uh, you will read it at some point uh, during this Christmas season. But in this announcement, Gabriel says to Mary, he says, Greetings, O favored one. This is from Luke chapter 1. The Lord is with you, but she was greatly troubled and trying to discern uh, what sort of greeting this might be. But the angel then said, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So it's just calling to mind. It's reestablishing all that God has promised before, and it's putting them back into perspective and saying, the time is finally here. So I, I I hope that as we wrap this episode up, I mean we've 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 tried to track through the entire Old Testament uh, and do it in a timely fashion. Didn't quite uh, come under our goal, but that's okay uh, because uh, this promise here in Luke one is not the first time that the Messiah has been promised. Like like this didn't just come. This didn't just happen in a vacuum, right? This isn't just like out of nowhere. This was. This was the story from Genesis 3.15 all the way up to Luke 1. We've been building up to this point. Everything has been pointing ahead to this. So this didn't. This isn't just like Mary going about her day and all of a sudden, boom, an angel appears. It's like, okay, son of who? Like, what? The house of what? Like, no, this is a fulfillment. This is what has been uh, anticipated and promised for thousands of years, for generation after generation after generation. And I think that we need to be mindful of that as we read these promises uh, or we read this prophecy or this promise here in Luke 1. This is this is uh, loaded with thousands of years and generations of waiting for this moment. So this is not, again, this isn't just out of nowhere. Uh, the time has come and uh, it's finally here in the person of Jesus. Man, this was a phenomenal episode to record. I know it's just yeah, it's been been a lot lights of fun, out, lights out, encouraging, you know, to my own yeah. soul just to step back and 
just think of big picture realities, especially around, you know, the holiday season and to really put into perspective, you know, that people were waiting for the coming of the Messiah in, in the same way that we should be waiting for his return. And of course, that's not what this episode is about, about but there is that, that, that ultimate longing for his second advent, for his second coming, for him, him to return to this earth for his people. Yeah, man, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm gonna I'm gonna just speed through. I wrote down three uh, application points or implications for us today. <laughs> I'm gonna hit them like in two seconds. Uh, anything you want to add, please do. But I would say I would say this: when I preached this last year, these are the things I highlighted. Number one, that the accuracy and the reliability of the Word of God, right? That God's Word has been proven to be faithful um, because He is faithful. Uh, it's been proven to be true. Uh, because of who God is, so we can trust what it says. So God's faithful. His word is true. Uh, we can see that promise fulfilled uh, even in the person of Christ. Number two, uh, I think this is important for us in 21st century America, but the Bible is not about you. Uh, it's about Christ. And so when you read the Old Testament, reading with the whole story in mind uh, helps us to understand that this is not just some like really cool story about uh, David killing a, a giant dude, you know, in war like that had, had a purpose and it was moving us toward uh, the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what the Old Testament is really about. And then number three, you mentioned this, man, like this season that we're in now, we're 2000 years after uh, the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Well, Second Peter three talks about this, that there are going to be scoffers who come in the last days and say, where, where is this Jesus you said was coming back, right? Like you, you guys, things just continue just as they have before. Um, you guys are putting your hope in something that doesn't, it's not going to happen. And we saw this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years waiting for the, uh, the advent, the appearance of Christ. And in the same way, all of human history is marked by this because now we wait for his return. And so all of these things uh, point us to live in hopeful anticipation of his second coming. And so I do think that there's a, a, a significant application for us um, a, as believers today. So uh, I hope that's encouraging for our listeners. I hope that's informative and helpful and thoughtful. And if nothing else, I mean, I hope it stirred your affections the way it has mine. Uh, as we're in this holiday season, this, this Christmas time, um, thinking about the coming of Christ, thinking about uh, that night in Bethlehem, um, thinking about the birth of our Savior, it it, it gives so much more uh, to that story when you think about the fullness of time finally coming. Yeah, man. Thanks for that application. Always application to any portion of Scripture. Man, that's 2 Timothy 3.16, man. It's profitable uh, no, no, matter, right. no matter the the place or portion of it. Well, I think to kick us off uh, for the initiative uh, for this episode, I, I want to take it sort of a, a different route, maybe. Um, you know, you could be listening to this podcast and, and you may be thinking, possibly, and, and, and you may not, but you could be thinking that that maybe, maybe we've kind of t- we've taken these portions of Scripture from the Old Testament and we've stretched them and we've tweaked them and uh, you know, you know, maybe you think that we're just reaching too far to kind of thread together this storyline. So, if that's where you land, I would encourage you to look at Luke chapter two, 
um, two people in particular, Simeon and Anna. And what I mean by looking at their stories is, is that they are testimonies and witnesses to the reality that the Old Testament has been talking about this very thing. And I say that because if you read um, Luke chapter 2, let me get it pulled up here. If you read Luke chapter 2, um, in, in, in Simeon's response, when he meets Jesus Christ, when he meets baby Jesus, essentially 40 or so days after his birth, he, he says, or the text, actually Luke narrates it, Luke says about Simeon that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then when you get down to Anna, who shows up on the scene next, and she is also she also encounters uh, baby Jesus, it, it says here that she was looking for redemption in Jerusalem. So you have two people, both Simeon and Anna, who are looking for the Messiah. They are looking for this person. They are looking for this, this seed who's going to bring redemption to Israel, bring redemption to the nation. Now, again, they didn't have the totality of Scripture, but they did have the Old Testament that we just worked through, and, and they, they got it. They, they understood. They connected mm. all of the dots. Huh, I love that. That was, by the way, that was free. That wasn't on the guide. Lance just, I mean, just ah, outstanding. I was not ready for that. Um, man, that's really good. I'm, I appreciate you pointing that out. And uh, yeah, we didn't just uh, we didn't just come up with this out of nowhere. Um, this is exactly what the Old Testament says, man. I love that. Um, man, for, for, for me, when I think about, uh, when I think about all this, um, the storyline, this thread that's been woven through uh, the thousands of years of, of redemptive history. I think about the fact that that first Christmas that showed up 2000 years ago, it was a long, long time coming, but it was worth the wait. Um, all that Israel endured and waited for and anticipated all the, as you mentioned there in Luke two, uh, when you, you've got, uh, the, these these um, uh, Israelites who are still longing for these Jews who are still waiting for the Messiah. It was worth it. I mean, it was worth all of that time waiting for this for all of human history. And um, I would say, in the same way, it's going to be wait. It's going to be worth it as we wait for his return. Mm. Uh, that we will not be disappointed when he f- finally comes upon the scene, and he consummates history, and he does what he has declared he will do. And because the first time uh, he came, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He, he died so that we would live. He came as a lamb. But when he comes back, he's not going to die. He's coming to reign, and he's going to be the lion who will roar to this kingdom that will be no end. And of that, that will be worth waiting for. So as we long for that day, we anticipate that day, we hope for that day, um, it's a day that will not disappoint. Yeah, man. Time's up. If you've made it this far, you're not doing so. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can follow us on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can like us on social media. We're on Facebook at Reformed Informants. We're on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants. And you can find links to all of our social media platforms, uh, our previous episodes, and you can find uh, some Reformed Informants gear. You can find all that at our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at Reformed 
informedinformants at gmail.com. <laughs>